0: Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Imagine that you've just seen the most wonderful home you've ever seen. Someone's built it specially for you. And you move in. And everything's just as wonderful as you thought it was going to be. And then a few weeks later, or a little time later, you're thrown out. What's gone wrong? That's what we're looking at today. Oops, wrong one. Wrong direction. We're going to look at the man who got it wrong. That's my title for today as we look at Genesis 3. But I want to start by doing what Marco has done the last couple of weeks to set the chapter we're looking at in a context of a big picture. Chapter 1, we saw God creating land in general from a cosmic perspective. Chapter 2, God creating a land as a home from a human perspective. And now, in Chapter 3, we have the humans in the land, and at the end of the chapter, what we find in verse um, 23, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's gone wrong? That's what we're going to be looking at today. But also, as we try to apply it to ourselves, I want us to look and see, uh, how it would have been received by the original hearers. Now those of us who will hear, who were here at the time, will not easily forget the sight of Moses coming in to, to uh, tell us a story around the campfire. So we are going to ask the question first, why did Moses tell it this way? Well, when he did, he was with the people of Israel in the wilderness as they were preparing to enter the promised land. A land that God had prepared for them. A wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. And it's going to be so wonderful when they got there. But there was a danger for them. It was not just the armies of the Canaanites who were still living there at the time. It was their religion as well that there was the even bigger threat. But in fact... Neither was a real danger as long as they continued to trust in their God because they knew that he was able to to deal with the problems and they learned to trust him. So Israel was safe as long as they trusted God. But just very shortly before the crossing of the Jordan into the land, there was a warning right towards the end of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God... uh, If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. But even for them, once that happened, there was hope. Again in Deuteronomy. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So the pattern for Israel was conquest of the land, unfaithfulness, exile. But that wasn't the end. There was hope to have restoration to the land. Similarly, in Genesis 3, the original humans lost the land prepared for them. And, so, and similarly, Israel would lose the land prepared for them. It's that parallel that I think sets a context where we can see how it related to Israel and then move on to see how it applies to us. So let's look at the details to see what went wrong and something about the hope. So that's the big picture. And we're going to walk through the Paradise Garden and looking at some of the details as we go along. And the first thing we're going to see is what I call false wisdom. Now, much of the language in this passage is drawn from wisdom terminology and wisdom literature, which is an important part of the Old Testament. For example, the snake in verse 1 is called crafty. And it's the same word that comes up in Hebrew, in the Hebrew, in Proverbs. As there it's prudent. So there, it's got a positive connotations. In this our Genesis, it's negative. What it really means is someone who's knows how to get things done. And if what they're getting done is good, it's prudence. If it's knowing, if it's, what they're getting done is bad, it's crafty. So that's the difference. It's setting the context there. And if you look on to verse six, you'll see that it's des- the tree is desirable for gaining wisdom. So there's another wisdom theme in our chapter. And the snake itself, in fact, in the ancient Near East, was a symbol of wisdom. It even shows up in the New Testament because Jesus said that his disciples should be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So we're thinking about wisdom, but here it's not a good wisdom like in Proverbs where it's prudent, but here it's a false wisdom where it's crafty. As we look at the various parts of the chapter, in the second half of verse 1, the snake says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, That's not an honest question looking for information. That's snide. It's casting aspersions on God's character and saying, well, he shouldn't really have placed that restriction on you. He's a bit mean. And trying to implant some sort of doubt and in in Eve, as they spoke, so there we're moving on. And um, perhaps God isn't really good after all. It's a temptation not to trust Him, and it's a conflict between God's word and this alternative wisdom. Now Eve's answer is somewhat ambiguous. And I think there's a lot of ambiguity in the passage, quite deliberately, and we miss the point of the passage if we try to tie down all the details. So I will try not to overdo it in terms of the details. So the woman says that God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. She seems to add something, you must not touch it. She seems to tone down the certainty of death and so shes there's a lift. I'm not sure whether she really is or not but there's, a, there's I think a lot of ambiguity there and we have to live with that and as the snake comes up with his next contribution to the dialogue you will not certainly die now that's a straight denial of what God said and so he's gone from being snide innuendo to outright rejection of what God says and so He's casting aspersions. The the thing is that he's saying that, yes, for God knows that when you eat, verse 5, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there he's saying that God's being a bit mean. He's trying to protect his own status. He doesn't want you to be like him. He won't tolerate rivals. But bear in mind, going back to chapter 1, that in verse 26 and 27 and thereabouts, they were made as the image of God, according to his likeness. So they already were what he doesn't want them to become. And so there we have the serpent, the snake, undermining what God has said in various ways. So now, we need to look very briefly at the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This has <coughs> occasioned a lot of discussion over the years and all sorts of suggestions if you read the various books and commentaries and so on. Some, I give the, some of the more probable ones rather than the really way out of weird ones. One is that good and evil, it could be a figure of speech known as a mirrorism. In which you take two opposite things and say that that represents totality. So it's good and evil, everything in between, so that you'll know everything. There's nothing in the context to suggest that. The other, another, would be uh, to say that it's experiential knowledge of both good and evil. So, but later on in the chapter, in verse, um, where are we? Verse 22, God acknowledges that he himself has that knowledge of good and evil, and I'm sure he has not experienced evil. And so that is ruled out. And so I think the, the best suggestion that I've come across for what we should, how we should understand that tree is that it represents a desire on the part of Eve and then Adam to make their own decisions about good and evil. So one might call it moral autonomy. Something that Marco was mentioning in prayer was the way in which people want to be independent of God and make their own decisions. So that sort of autonomy, moral independence from God, lies at the heart of this temptation. (coughs) And So the attraction then is to become wise in this false wisdom way. I think if we look at verse 6 the middle of the verse the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it so notice Adam was with Eve the man was with the woman and he ate and so the deed is done so we now look then at the consequences and the first of those is in verse 7 then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked go back to the end of chapter 2 and we told that they were naked but here is the development they realised that they were naked it was a self-awareness that uh, they became self-conscious, they didn't feel at ease with themselves, and so alienation from ourselves. And we feel too often that we're out out of place, ill at ease with ourselves, is a phrase that we use to express an attitude of life. Then we get on to the second half of that verse, where they sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. So they're hiding from one another now. And another broken relationship, it's alienation from one another. I'm using the word alienation as a summary for all these various things that are happening. And moving on to verse 8 when the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hiding from God? How foolish. But they did, and it's another alienation <clears throat> from, from themselves, from one another, and now from God. Broken relationships all down through the uh, sequence of the passage. So we look at the dialogue. If you look at God's first question in verse 9, it's fairly innocent, it's very general, nothing much to it that the Lord God called to the man, where are you? But it is actually significant that he's asking a question. I think we must assume that God knew the answer and he wasn't seeking information. I think that would be a, a fair point from the rest of scripture, that he would have known the answer. So why is he asking a question? He knows what's happened. Why doesn't he send, just send fire from heaven? Consume them. Bring death on them. My suggestion, and I think it's Consistent with the passage is that it was an opportunity for repentance. They should own up to what they have done. They've been told not to do it. They've done it. They knew it, but they don't. And as the dialogue proceeds, we see that. In verse eleven, the questions from God are much more pointed. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Much more. And then we get into blame shifting. and It's a phrase that gets used in uh, all sorts of relationships. We see it particularly here. So the man, God addresses the man first of all, and the man says, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit. Man blames the woman. He notice also, it's the woman whom you gave me. Is even a hint that he's blaming God for the situation, and then the Lord God, (coughs) Lord God, said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" What does the woman do? Blames the snake. The snake deceived me. So blame shifting all the way. Now, is that something you recognise in your children, in yourselves? Yeah, I suspect it, we all acknowledge we don't want to own up and that's uh, characteristic it's never my fault is the attitude today but the curse as it comes when God responds in judgment comes first on the snake it doesn't actually ask the question, any questions of the snake because the snake would have nothing to say it would have no answer can't even shift the blame to anyone else so verse 14 is a general curse on the snake. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. <coughs> That's just a curse on the snake. Uh, eating, eating dust, well, I don't know, cowboy movies. We've seen those where they somewhat, the bad guys going to bite the dust. I think it's just a a figure of speech in that same sort of way. But then he comes on to verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike at his heel. And that, I think, is significant. Now, if it's just saying that humans don't like snakes, and snakes bite humans, well, that's too trivial, I think, for such a momentous context. There must be something more to it. And there are good reasons to think that this is a reference to a coming redeemer, a a saviour, someone who will sort out the mess that has resulted, and that there will be one who's the offspring of a woman, seed of a woman, who will actually uh, deal with the snake. And so in the symbolic terms of the chapter, it's going to be a coming saviour. We know it's Jesus, of course who will gain a victory over Satan to uh, sort out this mess that has arisen. It then turns to judgment on the woman. But before that, as as God speaks to the snake, you can imagine the man and the woman shoulder to shoulder. Never like snakes anyway. But then God turns his attention to the woman, and the man takes one pace slow. I've got another rib. But ultimately <clears throat> the the focus turns to the man himself. He can't escape judgment. There are ultimately no excuses before God. And God, God holds each of us, in turn, responsible for, his, for our, our actions. And as we're thinking about alienation, if you look at the terms of the curse in verses uh, 17 onwards, <coughs> Cursed is the ground because of you, though painful, through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So alienation between the man and the ground, part of creation you will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So alienation from the work and the labour that we have to do. And how common is that today? So a succession of consequences. But then the next thing we pick up The Lord God made, in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So it's a continuation of God's grace to the uh, humans that their provision of fig leaves sewn together to make aprons was pathetic and inadequate, so he gives them something more adequate, something to mitigate our vulnerability just a little because we can't take too much of it. But it is God who provides that necessary clothing. And it's a further illustration of our dependence on God. But ultimately, the curse comes and they're sent into exile. Verse 23, I read before. So the Lord God banished him from the garden. Verse 24, after he drove the man out. So there is exile there. Sent out of the specially prepared land with at that stage no apparent way back. But as I've already hinted as we've gone through the details, there is grace on view. And we'll see, put it, the threads together in a, bit, in a little while to see how much there was, in fact. But there, even in this there is hope, because we've seen the seed of the woman, the one who had sought out the mess that's been caused. Now Marco last week pointed us to the hope of a new home in the new creation, pointing us to Revelation 21. But one of the uh, features of the uh, new creation is that there is going to be a tree of life there. That's the other tree from chapter 21, from from chapter 2 of Genesis, that didn't appear in this chapter until the end. They're excluded from it, but then there will be a way back to it, a way that are both saved, redeemed, and also, immortal, just think of what it would be like to live forever in a fallen world in, in that sense, maybe death is a well i don 't want to go there too much I wouldn't want to, there are things thoughts it might encourage that i don 't think we should encourage anyway, so there we would have that restored access now very briefly, I want to have a footnote and Anybody who says Romans is a footnote to Genesis will be thought in a Christian church fairly odd, but I want us to look very quickly at Romans chapter part of Romans chapter five, <coughs> which is where Paul is uh, reflecting on the chapter of Genesis chapter three that we 've been looking at and there are two things that I would want to bring out of it he 's making a parallel between the, the one act of disobedience by one man, Adam, and one act of obedience by one man, Christ. So those, that is the parallel he sets up. And I won't, don't want to spend too long on this, but I think we need to see this for two good reasons. Verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. So notice that, that many died by the trespass of the one man. So there's a consequence in our present world. Next verse, the first half of verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin, The judgment following one sin brought condemnation. Again, a present consequence. Verse 17. If by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. Again, present consequence. So, (coughs) the argument I would give here is that if there is a present consequence, the past that is real in the real world, then the event, past event, must have been in the real world. You can't have a fictional event leading to real consequences, and that's why I personally think that we must regard Genesis three as at least to a certain extent historical, with one man and one act of disobedience. Paul seems to require it. <coughs> the other point I'd like to make very briefly from from Romans is that. Our connection with Adam is not just we follow a bad bad example. If you look at, um, where are we? Yep, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. So that's perhaps better constituted, or even as a legal term, declared, uh, sinners and established as sinners so it's not just that we happen to sin but we, and therefore we're sinners but rather we're sinners because of Adam and therefore we sin uh, well let's go back, those were the two things I wanted to bring out of Romans 5 let's go back to chapter 3 of Genesis and drawing together the threads Oops gathering the threads First of all, <clears throat> I want to look very briefly at the ways in which we see in the chapter the arousal of sin and the nature of sin. What I said in the dialogue between the snake and the woman was that there was, he was, the snake was engendering a lack of trust that God is good, a lack of trust that God speaks truthfully, and promoting a desire for autonomy, independence from God in all sorts of areas. So, there, if you like, lies at, those things lie at the heart of sin. We don't trust God as we should. Okay. The consequences. Look to various alienations alienation from self, alienation from one another, from God, from creation, and from our, our work, our legitimate required work. Then we can look at the danger. This was why I, part of the reason why I introduced the big picture. The warning to Israel, because that is, these were the first hearers or readers of the passage. They were going to be subject to all sorts of temptations when they were in the land. And they were warned of the dangers of exile and told that it had happened. Perhaps the, one of the main uh, warnings for Israel was that a false prophecy a couple of passages in Deuteronomy that we could look at, but I won't, saying about false prophets who would arise in the, in the land. For us, it's likely to be a false wisdom. The wis- oh, Very often it's half-truths. You can't just dismiss everything people outside the church say. Just that isn't the way the world works, it's not the way God set it up. <clears throat> they're still, we're still in the image of God, even though we're sinners and fallen. But they're half truths, And so you, when you hear something said, you have to be critical. You say, yes, but. And I remember something that from, came around from UCCF years ago, that <clears throat> it said that Christian students have to work twice as hard as those who aren't in some subjects. Because not only do they have to learn the stuff, they have to critique it as well from a Christian perspective. And that's what we need to be doing uh, and critiquing uh, some of the, the world's wisdom. So there we have that's the danger, the beginnings of grace. I hope as I went through I was able to draw out some of the threads of grace that run through this. The opportunity for repentance even though they didn't take it. The clothing, a provision to mitigate some of the consequences of the fall. And supremely, of course, a promise of one to come who will sort out all the mess that's resulted. And if the title of the overall thing was the man who got it wrong, I want now to focus on the man who got it right. We're going to be looking just briefly, but gratefully, I hope, and thankfully, to Jesus as the one who got it right. That Adam looked to gain wisdom, to have moral independence, to have autonomy. what about Jesus? So we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, I think it's 1179 in the Church Bible. It's a passage that many of us will know and love. (coughs) Talking about Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I'll read that again. Not because I read it wrong, but because I think it's so important. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So what Adam wanted, or what Eve wanted, and presumably Adam too, Jesus already had. He didn't use it for his own advantage. We know the way he used it. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And remarkably, that death on the cross was, as Paul puts it elsewhere, a victory over Satan. That the snake was defeated. But if you think back to Genesis 3, the seed of the woman would bruise the snake's head. But the seed of the woman would also suffer himself. And that's presented there so there we have the man who got it wrong and the man who got it right and he's the one we celebrate as we sing when John and the others come up man of sorrows but let's uh, just give thanks for what he's done Father we, we thank you but right through that dark passage there are threads of grace running through we see you at work preparing and setting up a new way forward for your creation. And although it took a long time, we thank you that you sent your son, who became fully human and got it right, not to exploit his equality with you, but rather to use it to serve. So we thank you for him and pray that we may be more like him in all we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.